Turn to the book of James. We're going to be focused on one particular verse in James. Uh, but I'd like to give us a little bit, set up a little bit of a context. I, I love the book of James. It is, there's so much realism in this book. James just doesn't really hold any punches. And he's writing to a largely Jewish audience, the dispersion, right? These Jewish, young Jewish Christians who had been sent everywhere. And, um, but you definitely get the impression uh, that there is sin amongst these brethren. And, um, and so James doesn't blush to say things like in chapter four, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. So he calls these people brethren, but it's clear that they're speaking evil of one another. And he tells them, don't do that. Uh, chapter, just a few verses before that, he says, don't grumble against one another. And so these Christians, these Jewish Christians are practicing the one another's, but these aren't good one another's. And then in James chapter three, verse two, Paul says, we all stumble in many things, including himself. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. But then when you follow the rest of the paragraph, it's pretty apparent that there is no perfect man able to bridle the whole body. Um, so down in verse eight, he says this, but no man can tame the tongue. No individual person can tame the tongue. But what we can do, he's going to later tell us in chapter five, is we can use that untamable tongue to confess our sins. And we can use that tongue to pray for one another in respect to our sins. And we can use that tongue to remind each other that we're forgiven of our sins. And the supplications of a righteous man can give us a strength, a power that can find itself more and more in harmony with the wisdom from above that is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, etc. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Confessing Our Sins uh, to One Another. And we're going to focus uh, particularly upon James 5.16. And what I'm going to lay out for us is basically two habits that are laced with promises. These aren't just, hey, you guys, get tough and do it. These are promise-laced habits that James is laying out for us. And then we're going to talk about a powerful promise at the end of the verse. And then I hope to give you guys some practical pastoral considerations by the end of the message. Let's go ahead and read our text. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard 2020. Uh, James 5 verse 13. I'm going to read down to about 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray for over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Let's go ahead and bow in prayer.
Lord, we agree with David that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And yet we all acknowledge there are times that our bones have, have grown old and that we have grieved when we have felt your hand heavy upon us and felt our vitality turn to the drought of summer. And we this morning, we acknowledge our sins to you. Lord, we acknowledge that it is godly people that come and acknowledge their sin and you become our hiding place in Christ. We ask that you'd help us to not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding and must be harnessed with a bit and bridle in order to come near you. We pray that your spirit would draw us near you now through your word. Lord, we know that many are the sorrows of the wicked, but we who trust in the Lord shall be surrounded by mercy. We pray, Lord, that you'd make our hearts glad as we are righteous in you and that we'd find ourselves shouting for joy in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, let's, <clears throat> let's look at um, our first habit. Our first habit, as it's stated in your outline, is this. Make it your continual habit to confess your sins to one another in view of the promise of forgiveness. I believe that's what's going on in the first part of verse 16, is, is we should make it a continual habit to confess our sins to one another in view of the fact that forgiveness is promised right in this Context. Look at what it says at the beginning of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. So let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to confess? Well, James, he is giving this command to a group of people, not just to individuals. So he's saying, y'all confess. Not just one of you confess, but everyone confess. And to confess means basically to say with your lips, to say with your tongue, the same thing that God says about your sins. To confess is to agree with God and to say it and to use the terms that he uses, that God uses. Uh, <clears throat> notice that this is a present tense. This is a continuous action uh, D. Edmund Hebert talks, uh, says it this way, make it a habit. Make it a habit to confess what? Your sins, plural. Not just that there's one sin once in a while that somebody might commit amongst these people, but these are plural sins, that each individual has plural sins that they should say out loud and agree with God about, and to call them sins, to use biblical language about the, the actions that, 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 you are, that you are acting out. Um, as James is writing this book, those of you who studied the book of James, we saw a lot of hard language in this book. I mean, just go back and, and look at chapter five, verse one. Come now, you are rich, weep and howl for your miseries. Um, 
your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. He talks about covetousness in this book. He talks about murder in chapter four. Murder, that is the word that's used for anger. Um, there's no weasel words in the book of James. And so we're called to come as a group, y'all, and confess our sins to one another using biblical language to do so. Um, and it seems like the one another here is an advancement from what's come previous in the context of confessing sins to elders. If you look back in our context that we just read in verse 13, it says, if any one of you is suffering, then he should pray and and then if he's cheerful, sing praises. Suffering is, is kind of a, it's a generic term for anything that could be bothering you. It could be spiritual, lack of spiritual health. It could be sin. It could be a trial. Um, so an individual should pray. But then in verse 14 and 15, if anyone's sick, let them call for the elders. So individuals within the church should call for help if they are sick or weak. That could be both spiritual or physical. They call for the elders, so the elders will come alongside of an individual in the church and pray for them and anoint them with oil. We do that here at Cornerstone. It's been done for many of us here at Cornerstone. And so there's the individual prayer, there's a prayer to elders, but it seems like in verse 16, he's moving to more just generic everybody. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. This isn't just talking about you confessing your sins to elders. Um, it's us confessing our sins to each other. So that would definitely include you confessing your sins to a pastor or an elder, but it would also include me as a pastor confessing my sins to you. There's a very much of a priesthood of the believer idea, it seems in verse 16, that we're really now talking about all of us as we stand co-equal together as sinners in need of reminding of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. As we come to confess these kind of sins, and we're, if we're gonna use the language that James uses in this book, we don't just come and say, I made a mistake. Um, there was an error. I didn't quite realize what I was doing. We come and we confess our sins as sins, as multitudinous, as mountainous. Martin Luther has a quote where he says, Christ didn't just die for picayune sins. That means like little tiny, tiny sins. He died for mountainous sins. And therefore, Luther says in one of his letters to Melanchthon that we can sin boldly, which has gotten Luther in some trouble over the centuries that what in the world does he mean by sin boldly? But in context, when he's writing and responding to Melanchthon, what he's talking about is that we can confess our sins as they are and not try to minimize them because Christ's blood covers them. That's what he means by sin boldly, is to be bold in your confession of sin. As Melanchthon was struggling with his own conscience, here he is, a pastor, a Christian, who's late in his years as a Christian, late in his years as a minister, and he's asking himself, why am I still such a sinner? And Luther's trying to encourage him, both as an individual and as a pastor, to be bold in his confession of sin. 
Listen to the full quote. He says this, Luther to Melanchthon, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner. Let your sins be bold. But let your trust in Christ be bolder. And rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, as Peter says, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. As a, I think it's just a wise, wise counsel of Luther to Melanchthon. And, and these are leaders of the church who were going through much suffering and yet they were comforting one another with the truth that we see here in our text that we can confess. It should be the continual habit of us to confess our sins to one another. But we do so in view of the promise of forgiveness. Look back at the phrase just before verse 16. And notice what it says at the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, they might be forgiven him. Is that what it says? No. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This is in the context of elders praying for people who have come to them for prayer because they have physical ailments or maybe they're overwhelmed with spiritual ailments, their own sins. Maybe there's a combination of both between their sins and their physical health. Not that all physical ailments are the direct cause of sin. We know that. But sometimes the body cries out when the conscience is sick. We know that. And so he basically says that as in the context of elders praying for people who have come for prayer, if they've committed sins, they will be forgiven. It's a promise. And so therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, you can boldly confess your sins because you have a promise that they will be forgiven. And by the way, your sins aren't forgiven because you confess them. Your sins are forgiven because Christ has died on the cross for your sins. If you've believed in Christ, you are saved. And then confession is one of the gifts and benefits of being in the family. Is we get to confess our sins boldly and confidently because our sins have been justified in Christ and our daily sins are daily forgiven. Sometimes there's confusion in the church about why should we confess our sins if we're already justified from our sins? Well, we confess our sins because just as in the Old Testament, you know, there was a, a once for all kind of ablution of the elements in the temple, but then there was also daily cleansing of those elements. And in the same sense, we've been justified and our sins have been paid for in Christ's crucifixion, but there's also a daily relationship that we have with our Father where we can bring displeasure to our Father, not in a wrath sense, but in a relational sense. And so God in his grace has provided daily opportunities for us to confess our sins. That's why Jesus, when he gives the, the prayer, right, the Lord's Prayer, Part of the daily Lord's Prayer is, Lord, forgive us of our 
sins as we forgive those who what? Sin against us. And then we also pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that's a daily act that we pray that we would be forgiven as we forgive other people. We're also reminded in places like 1 John 1, 8, 9, if somebody says they don't have sin, guess what? You're a liar. <laughs> but, if, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He's just because Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all the guilt of that unrighteousness. And we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's right there to advocate for us every time we sin, right? And so that's basically this first habit is we can, we make it our continual habit to confess our sins, not just to the Lord. We'll t we're going to distinguish w what we mean by to the Lord and to one another a little bit later in the message. It is important for us to confess our sins to the Lord, first and foremost. But this passage is telling us it's also important for us to confess our sins to one another and that that should be habitual and that we should do it not to in order to kind of earn some forgiveness or to somehow gain something from the treasury of merit in the Catholic system that we can't access otherwise, but we do it because there's promised forgiveness. Is this making sense? So this is the first habit um, that we are exhorted as sinners to put into practice uh, by James. So just kind of in review here, this is, this is very different from the Catholic idea of going to your priest. Maybe you grew up going to a priest and you confess your sins and then the priest tells you to go do works of satisfaction, right? You have to go say these many Hail Fathers and these many Hail Marys and whatever else, your sin, whatever it was. So you can access this extra treasury of merit. And by the way, if you forget to enumerate all of your sins, that's okay. When you die, you can go to purgatory and burn all that off for millions of years. Um, so God's provided that special grace for you to go to purgatory and get those sins burned off. That sounds nothing like the gospel, by the way. Um, no, we go to one another and, and we go to the Lord and we confess our sins as part of this healthy part of the Christian life in view of the fact that we've been forgiven. And we don't use weasel words. We try to use biblical vocabulary. By the way, this is not a one-way street. It's not just you go to your pastor. Your pastor never confesses to you, like in the priest system. Um, it's, it's not just you always confessing your sins and nobody else in the church confesses their sins to you. It should be a two-way street. Um, and, uh, and if we don't confess all of our sins... Um, or don't recall all of our sins, or don't yet know all of our sins, we're not to have our conscience bothered. We're gonna get there a little bit later. It's kinda like as you're talking to friends about your sins, you're confessing them in your care group, or maybe to a counselor or a pastor. What if you don't remember everything? Um, well, you're not saved by remunerating all of your sins. You're not saved by getting every single confession correctly, but nevertheless, this is something for our health. I'm gonna hit that in some of the practical concerns later. Let's go to a second habit. So the first habit is James here in this verse. He's given us two promise lace habits uh, for both our individual and corporate Christian health. The first one was to make it a continual habit to confess your sins to one another. 
in view of the promised forgiveness, but secondly, make it your continual habit to pray for one another, and I'm gonna argue, in respect to confess sins, so that you can be healthy in body and soul. I think the context of the prayer here is to pray for one another in respect to the sins that have just been confessed. That's the context of the prayer here in verse 16. So again, looking at this part of the verse, what, is it, what are we talking about when we say pray? Well, this is present tense, it's continual, it's habitual, it's a two-way street, we're praying for one another, and we're praying for one another with this, I think, this latent promise built in that you will be healed or strengthened or spiritual health will accrue to you is the idea. That as we pray for one another in respect to our sins, that spiritual health accrues, attaches itself to one another as we're praying for one another. So let's kind of let's kind of build a little more upon that. The idea here of the spiritual health so that you may be healed. It's the same Greek word that's used over in 1 Peter 2.24 where Peter says, by himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, by his stripes you are healed. And so this particular healing seems to be more in the connection to the forgiveness of sins. And so that's why I would argue that the idea here is probably so that you could be safe and sound, so that you could be healthy spiritually, uh, but that does not divorce itself from bodily because we do know there is an overlap between, there can be an overlap between spiritual health and bodily health, right? We have to be careful, careful not to overly go beyond Job in those connections, uh, but there can be a, a connect between bodily health and spiritual health. So as you guys talk about this later in your care groups perhaps with your family, <clears throat> what types of things I, are you to pray for? I think contextually it would be to pray about each other's struggle with sin. Um, and there's a promise outcome that you would be healthy and spiritually well. Um, and by the way, you know, the, in our context as, as Christians, post-Reformation Christians, um, we, we ardently disagree with the idea of confessing sins to a priest, right? And then needing to do works of satisfaction. Um, I, I think it's been well established biblically why there's a problem with that. And we ardently disagree with the idea of praying to saints, like praying to Mary or Joseph the worker or whatever your favorite saint is And if you grew up a Catholic. But as Protestants, sometimes we can overly reform and move away from the Catholic ideas that actually had some root in truth when they were first established in the early church. The idea of confessing our sins to one another is a biblical practice for you to confess your sins to somebody in the church, even to a pastor, not so that the pastor can pronounce some sort of, you know, go do this work of satisfaction and then you can be absolved, but to confess your sins to someone is a biblical practice and to pray for one another in respect to our sins is a biblical practice. I don't need to go to Mary and say, oh, Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners. No, she's not God. 
right? She's not full of grace, and she's not omniscient to hear my prayers in that sense, but I can go to you, and I can go to my brother or sister, and you can come to me and say, Pastor, would you pray for me in respect of these sins? And there seems to be a promise here that as we pray for one another in respect to confess sins, that there is a spiritual health that accrues and attaches itself to us. So, those are two habits. We're going to flesh out this argument with the last part of the verse. But the first two habits, that they seem to be promise-laced habits that are meant for individual and corporate spiritual health. The first one is confess your sins continuously as a habit to one another. And that's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street based upon the fact that you, not you might be forgiven, but you are forgiven. Secondly, that we pray for one another habitually in respect to those very sins so that we can uh, uh, grab onto the promise of spiritual well-being. Is this making sense so far? All right, maybe. Yes. All right, I'm not sure. Okay, all right, help me out. Okay, so let's, let's look at this final, there's a, a powerful promise at the end of verse 16 that I think really undergirds these habits. And the promise reads like this. It says, a prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about, can accomplish much. So there, these habits are commands. The first two are imperatives, but this last phrase is a promise. A prayer of a righteous person, when it's brought about, can accomplish much. And if you have various translations, the translations are really <coughs> all over the place there, because truth be told, the grammar is a little wacky. We have a few people in here who study Greek. If you're looking at your Greek Bible, you're probably scratching your head like, how in the world do I construct this baby? Um, <clears throat> but I think this is a good way to construct it. And the idea seems to be here. Here's the way that I've paraphrased it in your notes. Is there is a whole lot of strength <clears throat> that can be imparted to you in respect to your confessed sins through the supplication of a saint when he or she prays spirit-wrought prayers. That's right in your notes. If you guys are looking down at the notes that they have on the back or online, let me say it again. There's a whole lot of strength that can be imparted to you in respect to your confessed sins through the supplication of a saint when he or she prays spirit-wrought prayers on your behalf. And we get that from that phrase. If, you're, if you were to look at this particular phrase in the Greek, it starts off with this uh, this idea that there's a lot of strength or there's a lot that can be accomplished through the particular supplications. So this word for prayer gets very particular. It's not a general word. It's, it, it, it seems to particularize the request. And that's why I would partially argue that the particular request is in respect to sins. So there's a lot that can be accomplished through the particular supplication of a righteous person. So let's ask ourselves a question. What does James mean by a righteous person? Does, is it only the person who has achieved a certain level of righteousness in their day-to-day -day life whose prayers have this kind of strength? And I want to argue that however we interpret righteous, it needs to be connected to the first habit. And what is the first habit? What is it? Confess, Confess what? 
sins. So let me ask you a question. Is the confession of sins, does that exclude, is that mutually exclusive to the phrase righteous person? No, it seems clear in the context. Whoever is confessing their sins is also a righteous person because one person confesses sins, they're confessing to each other, then they're praying for each other, and then James is telling us, hey, that kind of prayer of that kind of righteous person, the one person who just confessed their sins, has, can accomplish a whole lot. And so however you interpret righteous person, it must include someone who is confessing their sins. In fact, this phrase a righteous person or a righteous man, righteous man. It's, it's a common phrase all throughout the Old Testament. Remember, the book of James is written primarily to Jewish people who are very, very familiar with the Old Testament. And a righteous man is basically synonymous with a believer. A righteous man is somebody who has placed his faith in Yahweh, who has given his mercy through the coming Messiah, the promised seed. Uh, what's I'll just give you one example of how we know a righteous man is a sinner who's believed in Christ is Lot. First Peter tell, you know, calls Lot a what? A righteous man. Why in the world would First Peter call Lot a righteous man? Because in his day-to-day life, he was always righteous? Go back and read your Bible. I think not. But why is Lot a righteous man? Lot is a righteous man because in the Old Testament system of theology, he believed in faith in Yahweh's promised seed. And Abraham, by the way, prayed for Lot, knowing that he was in trouble when the angels were going to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does God do? He, he basically, Lot lingers, not a great thing in that circumstance. God takes him by the hand, sets him outside the city, righteous Lot. All right? So a confession... Uh, the prayer of a righteous person, I would read the prayer of a saint who's pronounced righteous by, by Christ, the prayer of a godly believing person, uh, when it's brought about, when it's uttered, can accomplish much. And the idea of when it's brought about, I like the way the New American Standard 2020 puts this, and that's why I went with 2020, is because in the grammar of that, what we call participle, I don't want to bore you guys who don't care about English and all that. I was an English teacher, so when I went to seminary and studied all this stuff, I geeked out on language, so you don't have to worry about this. But the participle that's in the phrase there, it could be translated as middle or passive, and so it's kind of like, which way do you go? We're not really sure. And so the New American Standard 2020 actually leaves that ambiguity that it, it's actually probably a both end, that the righteous person, the saint, exercises their will to pray, but they're also being moved by the Spirit to pray. It's a both-end thing. Their prayers are energized by an unstated subject, and when you're in the passive voice, the unstated subject in this kind of context is always God. And so it's God that's moving along these prayers. Um, And so let's state the point again. What is this powerful promise? is there's a whole lot of strength that can be imparted to you in respect to the sins that you're confessing to one another through the supplications of that righteous saint sitting right next to you who's also confessing their sins when he or she is praying moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, here, here's kind of the bottom line. Here's kind of like the takeaway. You will be able to deal with your sins better 
when somebody prays for you about your sins. That's it. Is when you and I, when we keep our sins close to our chest and we don't let anybody know what our sin struggles are, and, and yes, we try to confess our sins to the Lord, but we won't confess our sins to one another because we're ashamed or embarrassed or we just think that, oh, nobody struggles with this sin and, and maybe I'm not even born again. I wouldn't be struggling with this sin if I was truly born again. And so I'm going to keep it right here. Guess what? You're, you're cutting yourself off from an important provision of power that God has provided through you, for you through other sinners sitting all around you. And as, as we confess our sins to one another, now somebody knows what your struggle is. And now somebody can pray for you in that struggle. Now somebody can remind you that you're forgiven of your sins because we know in first, second Peter chapter one, we easily forget that we've been forgiven of our sins. So somebody's reminding you, they're praying for you. And there's a promise right here that says that when a, a righteous person, another believer prays for you, that's powerful. That's powerful. If someone prays for me and says, Lord, let Mike not enter into temptation, deliver Mike from evil, can that prayer be answered? Yes. And will God, does Christ want to answer that prayer when I utter it by myself? Certainly. But part of what this text is telling us is there's something very healthy, there's something very safe and sound about us praying for one another in respect to the sins that we struggle with. So there's this promise is something that we need to hold on to. Let me ask a question again in different words that I asked earlier. Does confession of personal sins exclude one from being righteous enough to pray for another struggle with their specific sins? Think about that. <clears throat> if you confess your sins to somebody in this church, does that exclude you from being called a righteous person? And therefore, you are not allowed to pray for somebody in the church who is struggling with their particular sins. Answer, no. No. This is just part of healthy individual and corporate Christian life. And so now let's move into some practical considerations because <clears throat> these principles, I, I think, are clear in our text. I love how James doesn't mince words about sin. He's very clear on what the law is. He's very clear that we need new birth. We need wisdom from above. He's very clear that we all struggle. James includes himself in that all. He's very clear that no man by himself can tame the tongue. But what we can do with our tongues is what? Confess our sins to one another. We can remind each other of Christ's forgiveness. We can pray for each other. And, and that's part of how God wants to make us healthy as a church and healthy as individuals. So let's offer up some practical considerations. I'm going to I'm going to go as far as I can with this and just lop it off like a bunch of link sausage on these considerations. Um, and we'll see which ones really stand out to you guys in your care group or maybe your, your family Bible study or whatever. 
Here's one consideration. We are not justified by our confession of sins. We get to confess our sins because we are justified by faith in Christ. It's a very important reminder. And it's very important to distinguish the way Catholics talk about confession and the way we talk about confession. You go to your Catholic priest, you're, you're confessing because you have, you have lost justification that was infused to you. And now you need to go confess your sins. And now you're going to go do works of satisfaction. Chances are you're not going to remember all of your sins. And so you're not going to take care of all of them. In our systems, your sins have already been propitiated in Christ, 1 John chapter 2. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father that helps us in our relationship with the Father and our relationships with one another, by the way. And so we don't come to add to our justification. We come because we're justified, and that's why we can come boldly and confess our sins to our Father through Christ, but it's also why we can boldly confess our sins to one another. Amen. Thank Christ Jesus. Let me kind of flesh out. This is still consideration number one. So do not fall into the medieval trap of sin enumeration. Don't do what Martin Luther did before he became truly born again and think, okay, I got to say this sin, I got to say this sin, I got to say this sin, I got to say this sin. And then he would go away and he'd go back to his confessor just like 20 minutes later and start stating them all again. And his confessor finally said, Luther, leave me alone. Go, don't come back until you've committed some real sins, until you've murdered somebody. Stay away from me. <clears throat> but that's really what the Catholic system the end result, the logic of that system is you must continue to confess your sins or you're going to die and go to hell if it's a mortal sin or at the very least go to purgatory and burn for millions of years. And Luther knew that and he hated God because of it. No, we don't, we don't fall into the medieval trap of sin enumeration. Uh, there's a couple confessions that, that state this based on the scriptures. The Heidelberg says this, but of confession, we teach that enumeration of sins is not necessary and that consciences not be burdened with the anxiety of enumerating all sins, for it is impossible to remember all sins. As Psalm 19.12 testifies, who can understand his errors? Also, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart's deceitful, who can know it? So if none of us can really understand all of errors and, no, and, and we can't even know our own hearts that well, then it's a fool's errand to think that you're going to be able to enumerate all of your sins. So don't fall into that trap. Also part of this <clears throat> consideration that we are justified in Christ, if the prayer of a righteous man or woman in this room avails much, what do the prayers of Christ do? As we have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and the Holy Spirit is, is, is interceding as well, Romans 8 and so we confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another, but we also know that we have Christ our Savior and the Spirit praying for us as well. Let's give a second consideration. And that is, we have stated this, this should become a habit. This should become a habit. There should be in our homes, in our church, running through all our Christian relationships, a culture and a habit of confession and prayer. And this is part of what it means to love one another. It is fruit and evidence of being full of the Spirit of Christ. They will know we are Christians, what? By our love. 
Well, sometimes when we hear that, they will know we are Christians by our love. We think that means by me never sinning against anybody in the church ever again. And that's not what it's talking about. And you never sinning against me. And that our morals in the church just are always so high compared to the world that they'll know that we are Christians by our morals and the fact that there's never any conflict in the church and we always love each other and there's never anybody getting angry at each other in the body of Christ. Amen? That's just not reality. Read the book of James. No, they will know we are Christians by our love, our sin-confessing love, our prayer-forgiving love, our soul-strengthening prayers of love. As it says in Ephesians 4.32, I mean, that, that we uh, are forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven us. Be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgives you. That's part of what it means to walk in love is to forgive each other. Let's give a third uh, consideration here, <clears throat> practical consideration. What, what can this look like practically in your life and in my life, in the church or in your home? Well, the habits that we've talked about, it's basically their, their speaking habits, their uses of the tongue where we sp say something, we say something, we pray something, and then I would say we stay somewhere. And so we say something, we pray something, and then we stay somewhere. And so to say something is to confess our sins, to speak out loud to a brother or sister. How could this look is, I'll just, just give you an example. You know, here at Cornerstone, our pastors do tons of counseling, do lots of discipleship. We pray for people for their healing, both physically and spiritually. We anoint them with oil. And, and it's not uncommon at all for me to be counseling with someone and they begin to speak forth their sins. Here's, pastor, here is what I have done. Here's what I've done to my wife. Here's what I've done to my husband. Here's what I've done to my children. Here's where my lust problem is. Here's where my anger problem is. And this person is confessing their sins to me. And so they're using their tongue and I'm using my ears as they're confessing to me. <clears throat> and if their theology's right, and it's not always right, but they're not confessing to me in order to achieve justification. They're confessing to me because they need help <clears throat> and they wanna talk to somebody about their sins. They don't wanna live alone in their sins anymore. And so one of the things I write on top of, I, I take a lot of notes when I'm counseling, discipling, and every page of notes, I have these three words, you are forgiven. Oh, sorry. To remind me that when I hear people confessing their sins, I need to remind them that they're forgiven. Because <laughs> we forget, <clears throat> just as Second Peter 1 says, and one of my jobs as a pastor is to remind you, you are forgiven of your sins, and you're not forgiven of your nickel sins, your penny sins, you're forgiven of your million dollar sins. You're forgiven of those sins that have just brought chaos to your life. You're forgiven of sins that have damaged relationships. Some of us in this room, we have broken relationships, kids that we haven't talked to for years, parents that we haven't talked to for years. We have, <clears throat> 
memories of anniversaries where one or the other spouse was drunken. We have memories of adultery and we have promises that were made and were broken. We have years of hurt that have gone in secret behind closed doors because people were afraid to confess their sins and they tried to do it alone. And then after year, after year, after year, they finally realized I can't do this. And then it comes out. And one of my jobs is to tell people who are confessing their faith in Christ, you are forgiven. And that is powerful to tell somebody on the authority of God's word that they are forgiven. <clears throat> but then what's also powerful and one of the privileges I get is it's not like I sit and counsel with people and I'm sitting across the table thinking, man, I am glad that I've never struggled with any of these sins these people are telling me about. I can't tell you how many times I've been given counsel to somebody, a marriage counseling or what have you, and as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm like, this is great counsel, Mike. You need to go home and do this. <laughs> and that's part of the benefit of actually being involved in each other's lives is, is we get reminded that you're not just some high and mighty person trying to help some lowly sinner. As you're helping other sinners, it's coming up that, you know what, I am struggling. That's not something I struggled with 20 years ago. That's something I'm dealing with now. And so the opportunity that I have to be able to confess my sins to people I'm counseling or to confess my sins to Pastor Milton or to confess my sins to our elders, that's, there's something very healthy for me about that. Uh, healthy and helpful. Thank you so much, brother. <clears throat> and so, so what does this look like? We speak our sins. We listen. So we, we hear the pronouncement of the gospel from somebody else, and then they pray for us about that specific sin. And then we believe the promise that as somebody is praying for me, that God wants to answer that prayer on my behalf. God wants to answer that prayer on my behalf. So I, you pray, I mean, you say, you pray, and then you stay on that promise. You say, you pray, and you stay. And so maybe you're being tempted with a particular sin. You've confessed that sin to somebody in the church before, and, um, and you go back to them, and they say, how to go this week? And I blew it again. And here's what I did. And then the person who's hearing you has different ways that they can roll. And this is where, as pastors, we can come along and try to help you guys is, is you could say, oh, it's okay, brother, we all do it, and it's not that big of a deal. Wrong answer. No, they confess their sins, and, um, and we agree. We say out loud that we agree that what they've stated is sin. That is adultery, brother. <clears throat> you confess that you were looking at porn this week. That is adultery against your spouse. That is worthy of God's judgment. That is lawlessness. There are people in hell right now because of those sins. There are broken marriages because of that sin. There's divorce and hurting children because of that sin. You, you say back to them what their sin deserves, but then you remind them your sins are forgiven. 
in Christ. And then you pray with them for those sins. And then you, you, you come alongside them and vice versa. This is a two-way street. So that's a third consideration. Let's talk about a fourth consideration. Confession of sin and being forgiven does not mean there are no consequences or need to, uh, needs to be ministered to on the other side of confession. Sometimes I've been in counseling where one or the other party is like, I don't want to get them a get out of jail free card. If I just forgive their sins right now, I'm basically saying, go ahead and keep doing it. You can keep bludgeoning me and beating me up verbally or whatever, and I'll take it. What we're, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, starting with that relationship with the Father, that your sins are forgiven through Christ. We confess it. We hear that we're reminded that our sins are forgiven. There's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. And that's really what gives us the power to go boldly into that ministry of pain now that we've caused by our sins. One of the podcasts I was listening to recently, it's called Freely Given by Gretchen Ronovic and Katie Copeland. Uh, Gretchen says this, confessing your sins is not a magic go away now button. <clears throat> and sometimes that's the way we can use it. We can misuse confession of sins. Let's say like a, a child hypothetically sins against, we know it doesn't really happen here at Cornerstone, but a, a child sins against a parent, right? And the parent's trying to usher a confession out of the child. And the child says, all right, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Right? And then a day later, the child wants to still go use the device where sin was found or what have you. And then the, the parent's like, yeah, I'm sorry, that's just not going to happen today. What? You forgave me. That's not what we're talking about. Forgiveness is not a go away now button. <clears throat> we forgive the person. We don't hold it against them in a justification sense, but there is still ministry. There's still pain. There's still trust that needs to be dealt with. And um, Gretchen Ronovic tells this story that was very helpful for me, this story of the foot. And the idea is, is let's say I'm backing out of my driveway one day, Pastor Milton's coming up, I don't see him there, and I run over his foot, and I break a, bu break a bunch of bones in his foot, and I hear him yelling. I get out of my car, I run over, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor Milton, I'm so sorry. We get in the car, we're driving to the hospital, and he's sitting next to me, and the whole time he's just holding his foot, just going, oh, oh, it's so painful, oh. I don't turn to him and say, are you trying to make me feel guilty? <laughs> I thought you forgave me. You said you forgave me, and now you're rubbing it in. Are you get, why are you getting those x-rays? Are you going to sue me? What, what are you doing that for? And then he shows up the next Sunday at church, and he's walking around on crutches. And I'm like, great. Boy, do I feel terrible. Thanks for rubbing it in. No, he's wearing crutches because he's injured, right? And sometimes in the church, we can confess our sins and not take the ownership for the pain that's been caused and not be patient with people who now need to heal because of our sins. There's a difference. Does that make sense? And so, yes, we confess our sins to one another. Yes, we forgive. We remind them of, of the forgiveness in Christ. But then there's also a lot of terms in the Bible that talk about what to do with people that have now been bruised and broken by sin. And, and there's, some, there's some good principles for us to follow in that respect. 
And as we're trying to help people heal because of sins that have been committed against them or maybe because sins we've committed, it's a good idea for us to kind of wait, be patient, long-suffering, make a big deal about my sins. I've confessed it. You know, a guy commits adultery against his wife. She forgives him. But then a year later, he brings her flowers on her birthday. And then she starts crying. And he's like, what in the world? Why is she forgave me a year ago? Why is she crying? And he starts to talk to her and she says, you gave me flowers last year when you were sleeping with that woman. Well, guess what? Does he need to be patient about that? Is there some reason for him to be long suffering and say, you know what? There are fresh waves of my sin that are going to affect my spouse, maybe for the rest of her life now. And while I am forgiven, like David, there may be times where I feel like I'm being run out of Jerusalem by Absalom, with Shammai throwing rocks down on my head. And am I going to command the mighty men to go cut off Shammai's head, or am I going to say, no, this is from the Lord. I'm forgiven, <clears throat> but I'm going I'm to be patient. I'm going to take the consequences of my sin. We've only got time for a couple more, but this is actually still within that confession of sin, uh, ministering to the needs, is don't cross-apply these principles to the person you're, that uh, is confessing to you. So in other words, like I should have high standards for how I confess to somebody else and then be patient with them and try to really make sure the way I'm confessing, I'm making a big deal about my sin, I'm using biblical terminology, I'm not using weasel words, so on and so forth. But when somebody confesses to me, what I should not do is say, nah, you didn't do it right. That's not good enough. Yeah, you, used, you didn't use enough biblical terminology, too many weasel words, and um, I can tell that you're not ready to minister to me in my pain. No, <clears throat> be careful about cross-applying the principles that should apply to you. Does that make sense? And we're just masters. We are masters <laughs> at cross-applying principles that are meant for the other person. Um, a fifth one is the consequences of unconfessed sin versus the benefits of confessed sin. Proverbs twenty-eight eighteen says, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy it's, you know, it's, we understand Proverbs as a truism, but generally speaking, a person who just covers their sins, tries to hide their sins, doesn't bring any light to their sins, spiritually, they're just not going to prosper. The hand of the Lord will be heavy upon them, as it says in Psalm 32. And that's God's mercy, actually. <clears throat> but whoever confesses and forsakes a sin, God's loving kindness is all over that. And so there's reasons for us to come and confess um, last couple ones, I don't want to overwhelm you guys with my link sausage here, but circles of confession, um, you know, there, there are appropriate settings and disclosure. Uh, you will probably notice in this setting with me standing with a mixed audience and children and everybody here, I am not going to confess to you the way I would confess my sins to Pastor Milton in his office. Not going to do it. But there are, there are settings. There's, there's me confessing to God personally. <clears throat> there's you confessing to friends or family that are on a need-to-know basis. There's pastors, counselors, and disciplers. Disciple we have a confidentiality policy here that when people come, we do con counseling. We, we keep things confidential as long as a person is repenting of sins. 
right? So there are things that your pastors know about in this church that it's not appropriate for us to disclose to other people. <clears throat> There's sometimes there is a need to confess stuff to the whole church. Like when, on the back end of church discipline, we've had that happen here at Cornerstone where a, a good friend of mine was actually disciplined and then got up on a Sunday evening service and confessed her sins to the whole church. And that can be appropriate at times. <clears throat> uh, D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary quotes someone who says this, the arena of commission should be the arena of confession. The arena of commission should be the arena of confession. If I sin against my wife, I don't have to tell all you guys. But if I'm not confessing my sins to my wife, she can go above my head to my pastors. If that's going on for a long period of time. Um, and so there's, there is appropriate levels and your pastors and disciples, your care group leaders can probably help you make those distinguishing marks. Let me just say one last thing and then we're gonna wrap this baby up, this uh, medium rare steak, Lord willing. And that is the final pastoral consideration is the dangers of confessing sins someone else has placed on you. Um, confession is not just to placate the wrath of another person. We have to be careful. It, it, this can be tricky because you and I, sin is it's prone to deceive us and sin can blind us. And so sometimes somebody may talk to me about my sins that I don't see yet. And I need to be open to the fact that maybe I'm doing something I can't see. If I've got cream cheese on my nose right now, I would know it, but you guys would know it. And if somebody comes to tell me about it, I need to be open to the fact that maybe I have cream cheese on my nose. On the other hand, it could be that somebody is trying to enforce upon you something that they're perceiving inappropriately because of their own sins or because they're a sinner and they're, they're not God either. And so we have to be careful about confessing sins that we haven't committed. And that can happen in relationships sometimes where someone is kind of enforcing their will upon someone else and trying to get them to do something for sinful purposes um, and get them to make admissions. And we've, we've actually seen that as pastors where there's times where we're being told that we sinned in an area and we need to repent and we look at our hearts and we're talking to each other and we're trying to figure it out, doing the best we can. And then there's times where I have had to go into a meeting and confess my sins and repent. And there's other times where I've gone into a meeting and I've said to the best of my ability and my conscience, I have not sinned against you and I cannot confess that sin. And so we have to be careful about that as well. <clears throat> but let's not, you know, talk about that in your care groups, your family, the big principles, let's not get so overwhelmed by the pastoral considerations that we don't try to attempt the habits at all <clears throat> that are laid out for us in 516. These habits are meant for your health. They're based upon the promise of forgiveness that good Christian, individual, healthy Christian living and corporate Christian living involves the habit of confessing our sins to one another in, a, in an ongoing habitual way in appropriate levels and arenas and, and that we pray for one another in respect to those specific sins, reminding each other of the good news of Christ, and, and that we hope in that promise that's made for us right in this verse, that if I understand this verse rightly, there's greater advantage for my sanctification with you, praying for me, than without you, 
Does that make sense? And so I, I, I want to just exhort us in that respect this morning. And um, I pray that the Spirit will minister to you. There's lots of other things that people more knowledgeable than me, Pastor Carlos, Kim Davis, other of our counselor people would have a lot more information on some of these types of topics that can help you. Um, but we can, we can do this together with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we uh, do thank you so much <clears throat> that your, your word is sufficient. We thank you for a brother like James that you've been filled with your spirit to give us your word who just doesn't mince any words. He throws himself right in there in the mix saying we all stumble and he acknowledges that the tongue is just a, it's just a fire. It's just set on fire by hell and and nobody by themselves can tame this thing. But we also thank you <clears throat> that there is a wisdom from above. There is a wisdom in Christ that has been sent from heaven to earth to die for our sins and was raised from the dead and that we've been pronounced not guilty and that we are forgiven if we place our faith in Christ. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that as we continue to confess our sins to you and confess them to one another and to pray for one another, <clears throat> Lord, that you would keep your promise to us and that you would give us great strength in, uh, in our battle against sin and the world and, and uh, the devil. We pray, Father, that you would um, help us, Lord, to, <clears throat> to walk in peace and gentleness. Make us people that are willing to yield, quick to see our sins, quick to love one another in sins, quick to admit when our sins have consequences that need great patience and long-suffering. We pray, Father, for those in our midst who have been greatly harmed by sins of others, people in our church who have been sexually abused, people who have uh, had drug addict or alcoholic parents or family members. We think of many different sins, Lord, represented in our room where there's lots of suffering, but we thank you, Lord, <clears throat> that you are a, a God that does not break off a bruised reed, but that you come to heal and that you use your body to bring that healing. Even people who have sinned against us can be instruments of healing. And so we pray, Father, that you would use these principles in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that while uh, total justice and experience of absolute mercy in this life is, we're not going to see it here, but it is promised for us there uh, when we come into our eternal rest. We thank you that Christ is waiting for us. We pray this in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen.